Uh, it's my privilege to give the Bible reading uh, again uh, t- this week. Um, we'll be doing two readings uh, today. We'll be doing Luke chapter 11, verse 29 through to 12, verse 3. And the second one will be Ephesians 5, verses 6 to 14. We'll be starting with the Luke passage, starting from verse 29. Luke 11, verse 29. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah began, became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket but on a stand, so that those who may enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, have no part dark. It will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not wash first before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup of the dish, but instead, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did you not, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you. For you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers, also. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you. For you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore, as also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. And he went away from there. The scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something that he might say. Verse 12, chapter 12. 
In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Next reading comes from Ephesians chapter 5 starting from verse 6 through to 14. Ephesians 5, 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is the word of the Lord. And a big uh, warm welcome and good afternoon to everyone here and everyone tuning into the live stream uh, today. If you're in Brisbane, good afternoon. If you're in Singapore, good morning. So um, big warm welcome to everyone here today. Uh, my name is Stephen, one of the pastors of the church. And if this is your first time here or if, you haven't, uh, if, ha- if I haven't had the proper opportunity to meet you yet, I'd love to uh, do so after the service. Uh, please keep your Bibles open uh, to uh, Luke chapter 11. We'll be reading through that again uh, a few times uh, during the sermon. And as always, let me pray and ask God to bless us as we read this word together. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. Thank you so much that you speak to us. You speak words of grace, of mercy, of comfort, and you speak words of warning. So we ask, Father, this morning that you would help us to hear these words of your Son, that your Spirit would help us to receive them, to soften our hearts, to, to bring a light upon the dark areas of our lives that we need to shine light on. Father, we pray for your Spirit's help that we might grow and transform from this message and these words that your Son have spoken. I pray, Father, for myself and ask for your Spirit's help too that you would help me to speak clearly from this passage as I ought. For we ask these things for your glory and our growth and joy in you. In Jesus' most beautiful name. Amen. Mr. McGee, do not make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. Mr. McGee is a journalist investigating a man by the name of Dr. Bruce Banner. And for those who don't know, when Bruce Banner gets angry, he morphs into the Incredible Hulk. Now, when Banner gets angry, we learn he turns into this green rage machine and he goes about smashing things. Anger can teach us quite a lot about a person. Usually it's a sign of aggression and sin, so anger isn't always a good thing. When we see this sort of anger, we're afraid. Our response is and our first instinct is to run, to get out of there. But when Jesus gets angry, he does so out of his perfection. 
His anger is not tainted by sin like our own. And so when Jesus gets angry, that would be actually a very good time to pay attention. Because when Jesus gets angry, we get to learn a lot about what he is passionate about. You'll notice that this sermon is titled, With Him, Not Against Him, Part 2. That's because some of the themes that was uh, from last week carry over to this week. Last week we saw unbelief throughout the whole passage. Unbelief, which is the refusal to believe what is right in front of your eyes. Unbelief was the reason the Pharisees did not believe Jesus was casting out demons by the power of God. Their unbelief led them to the point where they said, well, Satan is helping him to cast out these demons. And here in our passage, a similar theme runs through as well. And this time, Jesus uses the metaphor of light and darkness to come to bring this across. The metaphor appears in chapter 11, verse 33 to 36. And then after he confronts the Pharisees and lawyers, he returns to the metaphor in chapter 12, verse 3. So that kind of bookend helps us to see uh, what the Pharisees and lawyers fail to see. Before we get into uh, that, Jesus confronts another group of people. Last week in chapter 11, verse 16, we read that while Jesus was casting out demons, one group was questioning how he did it, while another group was testing him, seeking another sign from heaven. Despite the fact that Jesus had just cast out a demon, they weren't happy with that. Wanting to test him further out of their unbelief because they didn't want to believe what was in front of their eyes. So in chapter 11, verse 29, as the crowd starts to swell, Jesus turns to everyone and says the following. Read with me again in chapter 11, verse 29. This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Now, the generation that Jesus is referring to here are the ones who are seeking to test him. That is the evil generation, these guys who were asking for another sign. And they're described in verse 29 as an evil generation because of their gross unbelief, dismissing the evidence before them. So Jesus says, no, the only sign you will get is the sign of Jonah. Now, for those who might have missed it, Please head to our church website because earlier this year we actually preached through the gospel, uh, through the gospel of Jonah, through the book of Jonah, uh, and definitely head online to have a listen to the sermons there and give you a bit more of the background as to what Jesus is going on about here in this section. Uh, The sign of Jonah is uh, referred to also in Matthew's gospel. He picks up the same idea, but there in Matthew's gospel he speaks of the sign being three days and three nights in the belly. So the sign in Jonah of sign of Jonah in Matthew seems to emphasize the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Here in Luke, the emphasis is a little bit different. You'll notice that there's no reference to three days and three nights. Here the parallel that Jesus is making is that Jonah is to Nineveh what Jesus is to this generation. What is the sign? Here in Luke, it appears that the sign Jesus gives to this evil generation is his preaching, his message. Just as Jonah appeared to Nineveh and preached a message, so Jesus appears to this generation to preach his message. The idea in verses 31 and 32 is back, backs up this as well. Uh, what is said in verses 31 and 32 backs up this idea as well. See, in verse 31, 
the Queen of Sheba, the Queen of the South, referring to the Queen of Sheba, has come. In, in 1 Kings chapter 10, she came all the way from the South to hear Solomon's message in all of his wisdom. In verse 32, the Ninevites heard the message of Jonah and they repented. And both the Queen of Sheba and the Ninevites will one day sit in judgment over this present evil generation. Why? Because they heard a message and they responded. The Queen of Sheba heard Solomon speak and she responded with awe and praising God. The Ninevites heard the worst and shortest evangelistic sermon in history, eight words long, no grace, no mercy, just judgment. And they still responded by turning away from their wicked ways. This present generation have Jesus greater than Solomon, greater than Jonah, and they have not responded. The Queen of Sheba and Nineveh responded to far less. How wicked, how much more wicked is this generation who fails to respond to Jesus himself? It is evil for people to seek a sign from Jesus given all that they have already seen and heard. So the only thing that he will give them is his preaching. Jesus points out then in verse 33 that his preaching has been clear for all to see. Right? It's not just a sign for them, but a sign for all. Using the metaphor of a lamp, he says this in verse 33. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Now Jesus is using a common sense argument here. You don't light a lamp and then hide it away where no one can see it. You don't put a basket over it. You don't stick it downstairs in the cellar, which lights up that room and no, nothing else. You put it in a clear position so that everyone can see the light. Now this metaphor isn't so much about us hiding our light. I think here in context, Jesus is talking about his preaching. He's using this uh, metaphor of the lamp to speak about his clear preaching and gospel message. The lamp is Jesus preaching. Jesus has been clear. He hasn't been whispering it in secret. He has been open. For, it has been open and out there for all to see. But not everyone will respond to it. So in verses 34 to 36, Jesus switches up the metaphors a bit, uh, mixing some images, uh, and he speaks on in verse 34. Read with me again. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. When it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Now first he talks about the eye as the lamp of the body. Now note, note how the imagery is that the light comes out of the eye. Now in our modern kind of scientific thinking of today, we tend to think of light going in the eye and then our brains process the image uh, from the light that's being received. That is true and that is right. In the Hebrew world, the idea was the reverse. The eyes reflected what was going on on the inside. How you see things is determined by what's inside of you. Jesus warns, then, that if your whole body is full of darkness, then darkness will come out. 
This is a picture of spiritual blindness. Unbelief which fails to see Jesus for who he is. But in verse 36, Jesus gives a picture of spiritual health, a body filled with light, wholly bright. This is the picture of someone who has received the light of Jesus' preaching, has had it impact their whole inner being. They receive Jesus and they can see spiritually. A spiritually healthy person is someone who's heard the message of Jesus, believed what he has said, trusted him, received him into his message, and has had that message transform them from the inside out. A spiritually sick person has heard the message of Jesus, but not believed, not trusted, and has had no transformation. To pick up an image from last week, it is like having an empty house, a house emptied of a demon uh, that's been evicted only to have that demon return with more of his friends. To have heard Jesus speak, but to have not responded, leaves you in a worse-off position. Jesus has been clear about his message. If you receive his message, then it will transform you inside out. His message will brighten all that is dark within us. So, before we move on, let me ask, how are you listening to Jesus? Are you receiving Jesus? Because it will show in your eyes. What's inside of you will reveal if Christ is really there. Now, Jesus has been speaking for a while now, and in verse 37, he gets an invite from a Pharisee to go to dinner. This is interesting. Maybe now we have someone who is willing to hear Jesus receive him in and trust his message. So Jesus heads off and he lays down for the meal and the Pharisee is immediately astonished by something in verse 38. Have a look there in verse 38. Jesus did not first wash his hands before dinner. Now in our day and age of COVID-19, we know that washing hands is essential. The coronavirus, which has caused so much global devastation and lives lost and economic hits and border closures, the spread of this virus is partly stopped by simply washing hands. You all know the routine. You wash your hands thoroughly, you sing happy birthday twice, so go for 20 seconds, and you'll drastically decrease the chances of spreading the virus by your hands. And here comes Jesus, he waltzes in, he doesn't wash his hands, he grabs a seat and he's ready for his meal. Ew. Gross. But it's not quite as simple as that. Uh, the hand washing here isn't just for physical hygiene. It was all about ritual cleanliness. The Pharisees believed that you had to wash your hands in a very particular way and only by doing that would you be considered spiritually clean to sit and eat at their tables. Now, that might sound a little bit stupid and legalistic for us, but there's actually quite a fair bit of good reason behind it. You've got to go all the way back to the exile. Israel booted out of their land, sent away from the promised land because of God's judgment. The Jews recognized that it was God's judgment on them for failing to keep God's laws. And so when they returned back, they promised uh, to the promised land, the Jews set about to change things. 
They poured all of their energy into understanding the laws of the Old Testament to teach Israel how to obey them. They wanted to be obedient. They wanted to honour God and to keep his promises. They worked so hard to make sure that God was obeyed down to the smallest detail because they believed that if they failed again, that another exile would happen. But the hand-washing is actually a part of the Old Testament laws. But the Pharisees took it to the next level. To make sure that they were obeying God, they went through every scenario they could imagine on how you should wash properly. So here's what we have to hear as we get into this confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees. The fact that the Pharisees and the lawyers are targeted for rebuke should be challenging for all of us. They saw themselves as immune from such rebukes. They were the good guys. They were the ones who were trying to obey God. Isn't it easy for us to think of ourselves as the good guys? To look at these Pharisees and these lawyers and to go, thank you God, we are not like them. But the fact that they get called out, that they are rebuked, reminds us that no one is spared from needing to respond to Jesus. We all have to respond to him. So Jesus comes into this house. He sits down without washing his hands properly. And the Pharisees are astonished at this. So Jesus goes on the attack. Verse 39. Read with me again. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. And the complaint of Jesus here is clear. The Pharisees were so focused on the cleanliness of things outside a person, but the uncleanliness of the person on the inside was ignored. So you can write rules that make you look good on the outside and keep them to make you look good on the outside, but rules... Do not reveal what really counts, the heart. Jesus calls out their inconsistency in verse 40. God made the outside and the inside. You guys are so inconsistent, he says. You're so focused on the outside that you neglect what's on the inside. So he tells them in verse 41 to give God everything, inside and out. Right? Arms that he refers to there in verse 41 are the sacrifices of money or food to the poor to relieve their poverty. It's a sacrificial form of giving. So Jesus is saying, give sacrificially of what's inside of you to God. Your character, who you, what you care about, your spirituality. Give these things to God and you'll be clean inside and out. But before they can blink, Jesus rains down three woes on the Pharisee. A woe is pretty serious. A woe is a way of saying that trouble is coming your way and I'm in pain for you. It's the exact opposite of a blessing. The first woe in verse 42. The Pharisees are experts at tithing their spice rack, but neglecting the more important matters of justice and love of God. The Pharisees were so spiritual that they would count the exact number of leaves on their rosemary and mint bushes to make sure that they would pluck off 10% 
to give to God. That kind of counting obviously takes heaps of time, time robbed of the more important things of justice and loving God. The Pharisees were selective in choosing to follow these minor rules while consistently ignoring more important matters. The second woe in verse 43, they love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. This is an attack on their pride and their attention seeking. They loved receiving honor and had a constant desire for such attention. The third woe attacks them at their hearts. Jesus compares them in verse 44 to unmarked graves with people walking over them. Now, I think we can connect with this pretty well because I think if nobody here would, would like, would nobody here would like to do that. I think if all of us were standing outside there in, in, on the grass uh, and then somebody said, actually, you know, someone's buried underneath where you are standing, we would all freak out a little bit, right? That would just, we just, we wouldn't want to do that. Touching a body in the Old Testament laws made you unclean before God. The Pharisees extended that. Walking over a grave would also make you unclean. It was as good as touching a dead body. Here the Pharisees are the unmarked graves. The dead bodies that nobody knew about. Making people unclean by walking over them. See, this is getting them right at their heart because the Pharisees believed themselves to be the epitome of purity. But they were spiritually unclean and their teaching was leading people to their deaths. So, who among us would be keen to have Jesus over for a dinner party? I wouldn't be so fast to invite him. I wouldn't be so fast because I know two of my own sins. In verse 45, a lawyer pipes up. It doesn't take long for lawyers to pipe up. It's just a fact. Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also, he says. Uh, lawyers were the teachers of the law, not quite lawyers as we know of them today. Uh, they were basically the ones who had access to God's law. They read it and they were the ones who provided the interpretation of it. They were the elite Bible readers and teachers. This lawyer recognizes that when Jesus scolds the Pharisees, they are also in the firing line. And isn't it interesting that the words that, of Jesus that should have produced repentance and confession and a desire, a, a grief over sin, produce instead in these lawyers a personal insult, as though Jesus has wronged them. So Jesus moves his target sites away from the Pharisees and onto the lawyers. Three woes for the Pharisees, three woes for the lawyers as well. The first woe in verse 46, they load people with burdens, but do not lift a finger to help. The lawyers were great at telling people everything they needed to do, instructing them on how to obey, obey God right down to the minor details, but giving them no resources to help them out. So their teaching ended up crushing people, telling them the crushing weight of what they needed to do, which would inevitably result in failure and overwhelming guilt. And they themselves did nothing to help alleviate that. The second woe in verses 47 and 51 is a bit long and complex. Long story short, Jesus isn't accusing these lawyers of killing the prophets, 
but he's saying that the spirit that the spirit that caused their fathers to kill the prophets is still alive with them today. So everything they do confirms that they stand in line with their fathers. So the prophets spoke to their fathers in the past. Their fathers rejected the prophets and killed them. The prophets' work in ministry pointed ahead to Jesus, whom they are standing before today. This generation today rejects Jesus, seeking to kill him very much in line with their forefathers. So because of this generation's rejection of Jesus, Jesus says to them that the bloodshed of the, in the past which demands justice will fall on their heads. In the same way that the prophets pointed forward to Jesus, their bloodshed demanding justice will now fall on them. The third woe in verse 52 hits at their hearts. So Jesus targeted the Pharisees earlier, pointing directly to their hearts. Here Jesus again speaks to the lawyers, pointing directly to their hearts. In verse 52, he says that even though they had the keys to the knowledge of God, they had keys to access God's law, Jesus tells them that they have failed to enter into true knowledge. When they failed, they also stopped everyone else from knowing God. They saw themselves as the instructors and the protectors of the truth. But Jesus says they know nothing. Jesus had earlier said that a person's inner light or darkness would show in their eyes. The Pharisees and the lawyers saw Jesus with dark eyes because they had darkness within. It's a sobering thought that how you respond to Jesus reveals what you are like on the inside. Now, we are not the Pharisees. But as we read about them, it's not hard for us to recognize the Pharisees and the tendencies of the Pharisees within each of us. So Jesus warns his followers in chapter 12, verse 1, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Uh, Leaven is yeast, a single-cell fungus which, when added to a lump of dough, very quietly and very subtly works its way through the entire dough, helping it to rise. The imagery of yeast in the New Testament is generally negative. Sometimes it's positive, as we'll see in a few weeks' time. But the image here, here that Jesus is warning about is to be on guard for that small bit of hypocrisy in your life. The hypocrisy of the Pharisees was their desire to impress people with their lives, but a double life will lead to destruction. Give in to a bit of hypocrisy now, and it becomes easier and easier and easier to do that until that hypocrisy spreads through the entirety of your life. Ultimately, a double life will be revealed. In the final verses, of the passage Jesus warns that a double life will be revealed. The things that are said in secret will ultimately be made known. Read with me again from verse 2, chapter 12, verse 2. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark, and there's that image again, shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Jesus is giving a very clear warning here at the end for us to consider. What secret thing are you hiding? 
what darkness is still in our lives. If you say there is none, you are deceiving yourself. If you can't think of any, then you have not thought hard enough. The sins we have will come to light one day. That prideful conceit that makes us feel better in comparison to someone else. Most of you guys aren't there yet, but you will get there if, by God's will, you get married and become a parent and you see your kids raised up. You start looking at other parents. You start looking at their kids. You start comparing notes in your mind. You start thinking to yourself, well, my parenting is clearly better than their parenting. The spiritual pride that makes us look down on less mature Christians or Christians who just don't get things as quickly as we do. Those angry or frustrated words spoken out loud or in our hearts that we blast at others for their failures. We grumble or we explode or we snipe. Some of us are expert marksmen. We know the exact words that will put other people off or get them on edge. Either way, we target someone because they are to blame for how we are feeling. The self-pitying thoughts where we play the victim and overlook the contribution of our own sins. How about those images that glare at you from your screen late in night in the dark rooms? Those lustful fantasies that play out. Whatever it is, whatever your secret is, it will be exposed. I don't know about you, the very thought of that frightens me to the bone. Culturally, as an Asian person, the idea of being exposed like that is, is deeply and profoundly shameful. Who could stand under that weight of shame? It would crush us. Praise be to God that there is an alternative. And Paul says enough uh, about that in his letter to the Ephesians. As we read from Ephesians chapter 5, in the first half of that section of those opening 14 verses, Paul gives a long list of those different sins of darkness. Sexual morality, impurity, covetousness, foolish talk, crude joking, disobedience. He warns against walking in that sort of darkness, of living and accepting and promoting that sort of lifestyle. And then verses 7 and 8, he grounds his commands of change in the gospel. He says this, Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. See the reason there in verse 8. At one time you were darkness. Previously, before hearing and knowing and understanding the gospel, before you committed your lives to Jesus, you were darkness. Your eye was bad. Your body was full of darkness. Sin ruled and reigned in your life. But when you heard the gospel, when you understood it, when you committed your life to Jesus, you became light in the Lord. You were united to Jesus in his death and his resurrection, and you remain united to Jesus, who is the light of the world. Being united to him, you too are light. And because you are light, 
Do not darken yourself. Do not turn back to your old ways of living where sin reigned in your body. No, you are of the light. You are light. So live in the light. Now that you are united to Christ, live as he lived. To be light is to live as Christ lived. So Paul carries on in verses 8 to 10. Walk as children of light. Uh, For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. You see the interplay of the ideas there in verses 8, 9 and 10. If you're walking in the light as a child of God, a child of the light, fruit will be found in what is good and right and true. Next question, what is good, right and true? They are acts which please God in verse 10. So what are these acts that please God? Well, Paul says in verse 10 that you have to try and discern what these are. You have to think. You have to meditate. And that involves reading God's word and actually pondering it, thinking about what it means and how you should apply it, thinking about how it might apply to your work, your studies, your parenting, your family, your next big or small purchase. Discernment takes thought and action on God's word. And then Paul says in verse 11 that as you keep discerning what is good, you will inevitably work out what is darkness, what is not pleasing to God. And when you do, you are to expose it to the light. Take no part in the fruit, unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by light, the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Jesus has just warned that everything done in secret will one day be exposed. Here Paul is telling us how we can avoid the shame of that moment. How do we avoid the shame of our darkness being exposed? We confess it. We bring it to the light. Because when you expose what is dark to the light, it becomes visible. One evening I was walking to pop some rubbish in the bins at my home. And for those who haven't been to my house, uh, I have to go out the back door. Uh, There's a narrow pathway at the side of the house and my bins are kind of uh, out near the driveway at the front. Now, one evening, this is one evening I was uh, going out there, I turn on the outside light, I turn the corner to walk down the path, and in the middle of the path, was a massive cane toad. It was this big, maybe a bit smaller. Either way, it was big, right? If you're you're new to Queensland, uh, there are two things you've got to get used to, the humidity and cane toads, right? And once you're used to them, you can now safely call yourself a Queenslander. This cane toad was huge. Uh, It stopped me in my tracks. I had no idea what to do. So I did the first thing that you have to do in a situation like that. You pull out your phone to take a photo. Now, as I was pulling out my phone, I heard something to my left, just immediately. The fence line is not that far from me. I heard something to my left. It was a rustling noise. I didn't quite know what it was. It was too dark to see. The, The outdoor light is not that powerful. So I turned on my phone's flashlight, and what do you know? A snake. Just let that sink in. It was huge. I could be exaggerating again also, but it was a snake, right? The danger that was in the dark was exposed by the light. Notice what Paul says in verse 14. Anything that becomes visible is light. 
Now, there's a few different ways to look at that verse uh, in Ephesians 5.14, but essentially I think Paul is saying that exposure to the light of the gospel helps bring about change. Now, here's where the threads that Paul is laying here and what Jesus has warned about in our passage all come together. We all have dark secrets. We all have things that, if they were exposed, would bring us shame. Things that put us in danger, like a snake hidden in the dark. What Paul is encouraging here is confession of sin. When we confess our sins to God and to each other, they are exposed. When they are exposed to God, then they can be brought into the light of the gospel where they can be forgiven and where we can be brought to repentance. Friends, if the warning of Jesus is strong enough, then it will lead us here to this point. It will lead us to confession and repentance. Confession means taking the time to reflect, to be honest with yourself before God, to recognize the ways in which you have failed him and the ways in which you have embraced the darkness. And it means, only, it means openly calling it out, exposing it before God. And that requires getting real with God. Don't try and sugarcoat your sins before God. What a, silly, what a silly thing to do before a God who sees and knows all to try and make less of the sins that you've committed. Remember, we can approach God with confidence, with impudence, with ballsy confidence. He is not shocked by our sin. But if we are clear about our sins, if we recognize how heinous they are, then that might be enough to shock us into response. Confession requires knowing how our sins have impacted not only our relationship with God, but also about our relationships with each other. Confession may also mean being open to others about our sin, especially those sins which have impacted them. To own the sin on your part and to seek forgiveness and reconciliation. See, when we bring to light that which was in the dark, there is possibility of change. Jesus warns that anything left in the dark will one day be exposed. Let that warning lead us to confession and the hope of forgiveness. The goodness of the gospel assures us that forgiveness awaits anyone who confesses. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, forgive us our sins. Bring to light what is dark within us. Give us insight into every way we have dishonored you and lived for ourselves. Then help us to confess these to you and to each other. Help us to repent. Father, may the goodness of the gospel thrust us to confessing our sins, knowing that forgiveness awaits. May that encourage us, Father, to do this more and more for your glory and your light at work within us. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.